to the word. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And there we end the reading of God's word. Now we're going to be looking at each verse in turn. In verse 1, we will see how our husband, Jesus, presents his beauty to us. In verse 2, we will see how he describes our beauty, if we are the true church. And in verse 3, we will look at our description of how satisfied we are with him. So in verse 1, our husband presents his beauty to us, saying, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. It is so like him, isn't it, to to speak of himself that way? I mean, aren't we familiar with our Lord saying, I am, and then telling us something? We're very familiar from John's gospel with that. He says things like, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of God that comes down from heaven to give eternal life to the world. I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He says, I am the true vine. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, it would be certainly quite inappropriate for anyone other than the Son of God to speak that way about himself. Imagine someone saying, no one can come to God except through me. Like, who are you? To say something like that. If Jesus is not the son of God, then he, the Jews are right. He was a blasphemer. You know, he, he needed to be crucified for him to speak that way about himself. Imagine anyone less than God saying such thing. I am the bread from heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. I am the true vine. Without me, you can't do anything at all. It, it would be the height of arrogance. But since he is the son of God who came from heaven is our mediator in human flesh, he uses these descriptions of what he is as God enfleshed to give us a fuller and clearer picture of who he is. We know Jesus better by these words that he uses. There is no boasting here because his glory can never be fully understood by us as mere creatures, much less as sinful creatures that are confused in our minds for him to come into the world and refrain from saying such things would be to suppress his glory it would be to deny who he is he came to reveal his grace and truth to us he was the only begotten the father full of grace and truth and we have beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth he came to reveal himself in a way that we desperately need him to reveal himself that we need to see him It's so helpful for him to reveal himself to us in this way. By describing him in terms of the things that we are familiar with, it helps us to have a fuller understanding of who he is and what he's all about, what he is to us. We're dull, you see, but we we would not easily see all that he is if he didn't tell us in in this helpful way. By describing himself like this, we're also given monikers, you know, uh, names that we can call him, that we can hold on to, 
that we can use to freely speak of him and to think of him. I mean, how helpful it is to call him the Rose of Sharon or the Good Shepherd or the True Vine or the Light of the World. We know him better through those names. And it gives us just one name that we can, we can hang on to that has a whole rich meaning to it. We can better speak of him to, to those that, about him to those that don't know him. And we can think about what he is to us and encourage each other in who he is. Each of these descriptions of himself has a particular focus. For example, when he says he's the light of the world, what does that suggest? That the world is in darkness, that we don't know God, that we've been darkened. And he comes as light to bring light into that darkness. That's where the light comes from if there's any light to be in this world. And uh, so we might ask then, uh, okay, there's different focus of the different names focusing on something in particular about him. What is the focus of Jesus' revelation to us in the words of verse 1 that say, I am the Rose of Sharon. I am the Lily of the Valley. The focus of this self-revelation of Jesus is beauty. Is that not what you the flower stands for? The light would represent truth in that? The, the flower represents beauty. We don't think enough about the beauty of our Savior. It ties in with what the church has said about him at the end of chapter 1, the bride, in verse 16. Behold, you are handsome. We looked at that last week. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Last week I told you that the word that's translated handsome in, in my version here, that it means beautiful. It means lovely. It means fair or charming. It's the same word that is used actually before that in the in a verse prior to that that's translated fair. It's used twice. So here, two verses later, he responds to our praise of his beauty. Okay, we have said two verses before. Remember, there's no chapter divisions. In the, he, he responds to that praise and says, I am the rose of Sharon and I am the lily of the valley. He's picking up on that idea of being the fair one, the one that's more fair than the sons of men, as we sang in Psalm 45. What is this then but a description of excelling beauty, surpassing beauty, beauty that excels all other beauty? The flowers mentioned here, the rose and the lily. Uh, we, we have little rose and little lily here today. The rose and the lily are used in the Bible they're celebrated in the scripture for their beauty. I got a little tired when I was uh, studying about this because of all the discussion and the commentaries and the lexicons about whether the rose was actually a rose and whether the lily was actually a lily and what it might be and what it could be and what the root means and all this sort of thing. Not a few of the ones who wrote on this attempted to argue that these flowers were spoken of here because they're just ordinary flowers. And so the woman was speaking, and she wasn't boasting or anything. She was just saying, I'm just like an ordinary field flower. That was basically how they, they looked at it. Just, just a flower, you know, just an ordinary field flower. It's, it's a nice thing, but I'm just one of many. And then he says, no, no, you're the, you know, you're a lily among thorns. Um, so the woman's speaking of herself. And that, that works. It makes sense. You could preach that. Um, it's, it, it, it's okay. But uh, they talk about the Hebrew root words. These guys went on and on and how these words are related to words that are used in other literature outside the Bible at that time and all kinds of stuff. It's helpful to look at that and to, to consider all those things. But they come up with all these divergent theories. 
I've told you about some of the crazy things they have. I mean, like one guy says this is a collection of songs from feminist writers about of the day that were trying to encourage women to be more aggressive. Or, you know, it's, it's just you get all kinds of stuff. But it can be helpful to consider, you know, things that were written before and look at some of the um, literature of the day. But it can cast it can cast some light on the text. But we must always remember, what's the best way to find out when the Bible uses a word like a rose or a lily? What's the best way to find out what the Bible intends by that? The best way is to look and see how it's used in the Bible. And then you say, okay, if the Bible uses this word consistently in a certain way, then that's how we should understand it. The Bible is its own best interpreter. That's a fundamental principle of Bible interpretation or hermeneutics. So what we find of the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley is that these flowers are consistently praised in Scripture. They're not looked at as ordinary flowers. They're looked at as beautiful flowers. Modern scholars may feel that the flowers described here are quite ordinary and refer to the flowers, uh, that they refer to flowers other than roses and lilies. And the rose one, we really don't know exactly what flower it is, but we know how it's used in Scripture. The burning question then, how does the scripture talk about these flowers? And then we can get an idea of how they're used in this passage. The word translated rose is quite rare in the Bible. It's only used one other time, but it's very significant the way it's used. In Isaiah 35, when, it, when it's used, it's used as an emblem of paradise restored. It's not just an ordinary flower. This is like the fullness of God's blessing used as an emblem of that. And interestingly, Sharon, which is a place that's consistently praised in Scripture for its beauty and fertility, I think a lot of you would even know that just from you know reading in general, it's also used with the rose in Isaiah 35 to speak of the restoration of paradise after its ruin. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 35, verse 1 and 2. It says, <clears throat> the wilderness, is, it's just talked about the ruin that had come upon the land because of the sins of the people. And then it says in 35.1, the wilderness and the wasteland, okay, it had become a howling wasteland, shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. So the place where there's nothing growing, now there's beautiful flowers. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel, and there it is, Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. These are emblems of the revelation of the glory of God to his people. And what about the lily? How is the lily spoken of in the Bible? Is it an ordinary plain flower? Not at all. In 1 Kings 7, when the temple is described, we're told that the top of the columns that were in the, the two columns that were in front of the temple, you remember they were named um, Jachin and Boaz. And in 1 Kings 7.22, it says that the tops of the pillars were in the shapes of lilies. So the lily was used to adorn the temple where God met with his people. And then in verse 26, we're told that the brim of the cup of the bronze sea, this is still 1 Kings 7, was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. The beauty of the lily was used, it was praised as something that adorned the temple. 
But perhaps the most helpful reference of all is that of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 6, 28 and 29. Now remember, Jesus knew, of course, the Song of Solomon. He knew that it was written by Solomon. And so he, speaking to his people, says, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They're just ordinary flowers. No, he doesn't say that. He says, consider, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. That's a pretty strong acclamation about lilies. It's especially of note that Jesus said this, knowing of this reference in the Song of Solomon. Solomon himself as great as he was, is not comparable to a lily, and Jesus is the lily of lilies. Solomon would be boasting arrogantly to say, I am the lily of the valley. But our Lord Jesus Christ is actually condescending when he says, I am the lily of the valley. Surely then, the only fitting one to say, who could say this is our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Sharon was a place where roses grew best, the valleys were the place where lilies grew best. So the best roses and the best lilies, and I am the lily of the best and the the rose of the best. Our Lord is here proclaiming his beauty. Think of it. He is called the brightness of his Father's glory. The Father sent him from heaven to take a body He prepared a body. The father prepared a body for him and sent him to that body. It was formed of the, the, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, fully human body. And we're told on more than one occasion that the father was pleased with his son when he came in flesh. He said, I'm well pleased with him. I'm delighted with him. He didn't say that, couldn't say that about anyone else. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily of the valleys. He surpasses the most beautiful things on earth. What can be the equal in beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ? When Isaiah describes him in chapter 53 as one who is crucified for us, he says there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. So is that a contradiction? No, he did not have all the symbols of royalty when he came here because he came to die on the cross. He didn't have the exquisite grooming and haircut and trimmed beard and all the things that a, that a king would have, crowns and jewels adorning him, purple apparel, fine apparel, all these things. But he had a beauty that surpasses all of these. What are we told that he had? He had righteousness and faithfulness was the belt of his loins. Everything was held together. And we're told that he was the exact image of the Father's glory, of those who had eyes to see He was lovely beyond all. Remember Anna and Simeon, even when he was a babe and they they saw him and they said, my eyes have seen the hope of Israel and they, they rejoiced in his beauty as one who had come to redeem them. He will come with all the outward splendor when he returns with all his holy angels with him. He'll appear in glory, dazzling, and we will see his glory in that way. But those who had eyes to see saw the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, when he came into the world. Even when he went to the cross, they saw glory there. We see glory in the cross. 
that's where he is most fully revealed, even more fully than he will be revealed when he comes in his glory at the last day. We will understand the cross better, but the full revelation of his glory is in the cross. They beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, and we do too when we understand what is revealed. Yes, here is the one who is holy without sin. Here is the one who loved as no one had ever loved before. He alone loved the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He alone loved his neighbor as himself. Here is the one who, even when he was provoked and tried and tested, did not retaliate, but bore patiently everything that was cast at him. He is the one who loved us, even when we were yet enemies, and who himself died on the cross for our forgiveness. You will never find a rose so fair, not in all of Sharon, nor will you find a lily so full of grace in any valley. In Psalm 50, verse 2, it says it so well, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Out of Sharon, you see, if we look at Zion as represented by Sharon, then, then out of that, the glory of God shines forth. I say then, let his beauty fill and delight your soul. We are by nature lovers of beauty, and we don't think enough about the beauty of Jesus. It's so good to have this revelation. Our corruption and sin makes us lovers of idols. We gravitate to idols, things that we covet, things that are not ours. How wrong for us to hang on to idols. Our sinful anger, our deceitful lusts, our love of money, praise, our clinging to control that makes us anxious and unwilling to lose ourselves for Christ. In Jesus, there is beauty to behold, to truly behold, that will lift us up and out of all of that idolatry. But our half-hearted devotion, our reluctance to gaze on him and to abandon ourselves into his care, prevents us from ever finding satisfaction in him. We're always never never really finding that that fullness we go on like idiots gazing at everything that cannot satisfy us and we miss the resting place that is set before us in Jesus Christ we're all focused on all this other nonsense he is the rose of sharon he is the lily of the valley this is where you find everything Oh, that we might say with the psalmist in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. This is how Anna and Simeon were. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. But now let's move to verse 2. In verse 2, the Lord, our husband, describes our beauty. Verse 1. His beauty, verse 2, our beauty. To us, if we are of his true church, the bride, the bride, he says, like a lily among the thorns, so is my love, that's what he calls us, the one that I love, in other words, not the love that he has for us, but my love, that the people that he loves. So he says, like a lily among the thorns, so is my love, my bride, among the daughters. Now, with these words, he shows us that our beauty is a reflection of his beauty. He is the lily, and we are like a lily. This is similar to things he says about us in the Gospels, if we are his. Like in John, 
He is the truth. What are we? We are of the truth. He is the light of the world. What does he say about us? He says, you also are the light of the world. In other words, you shine the light in the world through knowing me. He is the Lord, our righteousness. In him, we are righteous. Our righteousness depends on him. It's not in ourselves. It's imputed to us from him. He is beautiful. Beautiful. His beauty is upon us. What we sang in Psalm 90 earlier, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us and our children. We become lovely when we believe. We become beautiful when we believe. It is then that we answer his call when we believe. We answer his call to come to him who died to atone for sin, that we might be forgiven and accepted by him. It is then that we receive him as our Lord and our husband. It is then that he washes us with his spirit. We were, we were filthy. We were polluted. We were defiled. We looked at that last week in Ezekiel 16. He washes us to renew us and fill us with holiness that we might live in the Father's house. And indeed, we're adopted. We become his betrothed bride, waiting for that glorious day when he returns and presents us to himself as a church without spot or blemish, fully perfected. And that last day when the bride is presented New Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God come down from heaven. A bride, as a bride, how what? Adorned for her husband, made ready. Not just any husband, but the husband who is what? The rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. A lily that corresponds to him as the lily. A lily made a lily by him. As soon as we believe, there is no more condemnation for our sins. He's paid the full penalty. And we owe to God the penalty that we owe to God's justice, that God's justice demands. He has satisfied. Our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west, as soon as we have trusted in him. And now the spirit of adoption is at work in us so that we delight in him. We long to be like him. His law is written in our hearts. That's a promise of the new covenant. So that what? What happens when it's written in our hearts? So that we desire to obey him. We desire, we lament our sin and we turn away from it. We turn from our rebellion to follow him. We are known in the world by the love that we have for him and the love that we have for one another. That's how God's people can be recognized outwardly. The ones who make up his true bride. We pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. More and more, as we go about with our Savior, then uh, his beauty rubs off on us. As we behold his beauty, his beauty rubs off on us. This is how he does his work in us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Not by our striving. It's not by our saying, I'm going to be holy. But it's by looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him, and he works in us to make us more holy. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're assured that it is his work, but also that it happens in this way of seeing Christ. It says, but we all with unveiled face, now that he's revealed, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is wonderful. Not only are we transformed into lilies, but we also behold more and more of the beauty of the lily of the valleys. That's how it happens. We see more of him. If uh, if that sun is hitting you too much, you can feel free to move over there. Yeah. 
So we're transformed into lilies. See how he encourages us by telling us that we are to him a lily among thorns that he dearly loves. I can think of three ways that that encourages us. To be told by him, you are a lily among thorns. First, he tells us this to encourage us that to him, we stand out from all the other others in the world, all the other daughters, as it says. We are the lilies as his people. They are the thorns. Even though we do not always see the beauty in ourselves, and sometimes it's not very, very apparent, or in our brothers and sisters who make up our, the bride, there's a huge difference between someone who is born again and someone who is not, someone who believes and someone who doesn't. As much difference as there is between a brown prickly thorn and a beautiful lily. I have already spoken about that difference, that we are pardoned, that we're clothed with his righteousness, that we're given a new heart that delights in the law of God and turns from our sins, that pursues holiness, that we are in a new and living way into which we grow into perfection. Notice that he calls us here, my love, again, as he did in the previous chapter, like 115 and 115. Remember that word I told you was, uh, when I mentioned it last week, that that word particularly refers to someone who is a companion that you delight in. It's not the kind of unconditional love that we might talk about, but this is the kind where I find delight in someone. I love them in a way of, of delighting in them. He actually rejoices, the scripture tells us, the Lord actually rejoices over us with singing. How can this be? It's because of his work in us. He's made us a lily among thorns. So that's the first way that we're encouraged. In his eyes, we stand out as a lily among the thorns, and he loves us. Second, his words encourage us that we ought to stand out. In other words, when he says, you're a lily among thorns, we say, oh, I want to be. He has set us apart from others as lilies who bear his likeness. There we should endeavor to, to be. We should, we should yearn to be like him. We, we, we desire holiness. It's a great privilege, but it comes with responsibility to be a lily. In gratitude to him, it's ours to be diligent to put off the old man and to put on the new man that's renewed in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness after the image of him that created us. Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, after telling us of all that God has done in his great mercy for us, his saving grace and all the benefits that we have in Christ, first 11 chapters, he goes on and on about justification, sanctification, adoption, all the benefits that we have. Then in Romans 12, he, he makes transition. In verse 1, he says, I beseech you, brother, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, all the stuff I was just talking about, the covenant mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable for you to do this. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like the thorns. You're a lily among thorns. See, there's an encouragement here. Um, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God's grace is working in you so you can be different. You don't have to be like the thorns. That you may, He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
You delight in the will of God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want God's way to be lived out here. You want to live it out. So see then that you don't conform to the thorns, but that you be a lily among the thorns. So there are two encouragements then. Those are two encouragements from his telling us that we're like a lily among thorns. What's the third encouragement from this? And again, we could name more, but these are just three that, that I wanted to give to you. Third, these words encourage us that he knows that we're among thorns. He sees it. Remember when his people were in Egypt? He heard their cry. He heard their groaning. He knew of the difficulties that come from that. It's not alien to him. He's been here himself. He was the lily of the valley among thorns. Bernard of Clairvaux said that there are thorns in the world, thorns in the air, and thorns in the church. Now how true that is. What does the world do? The world persecutes us because we're lilies and they are thorns, just as they persecuted Christ. They're offended. Why? Because we submit to God. We say, I follow him as Lord, as God. And they say, no, we we have our own standard. We do what we want to do. We don't do what someone else tells us. We don't do what some, some man in the sky tells us. You see, and so they accuse us of evil. They, they accuse us falsely and they speak all manner of evil against us. They live ungodly lives and they ridicule us for not joining them, for having a different standard. They set up their own standards and they do things like we're seeing right now. They celebrate wickedness. They celebrate sodomy and immorality. We see this going on in our day. And then they attack anyone who doesn't praise these things and uphold these things. They have a different standard. So that's the world. Thorns in the air. What did Bernard mean by that? Well, you know, the devil is spoken of as the prince of the power of the air. That's what he was talking about. This, the demons and the spirits of the, in the air. The devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He and all his minions try their best to discourage us from loving Christ and from seeing his love. They accuse us of being thorns. And they try to turn us away from our Lord. They say, you're not really a lily. You're just a thorn too. Whenever we do something, try to beat us down and, and to turn us away instead of saying, you're a lily. Come back to God and receive his, his mercy. And even though you sin, come back to God. Like David did. You know, when David sinned and for a long time he didn't confess his sin. He was, it was like he was a thorn. But then he, he remembered and he came to the Lord and he found mercy. They afflict us also to discourage us as much as possible. And then they tell us that the reason we're afflicted is because God doesn't love us. Remember Job? Satan said, if I afflict him, then he'll, he'll curse you. And, and uh, remember his wife? She was inspired by Satan. She came and said, uh, curse God and die. Like God has no regard for you. Why are you still serving him? Job said, shall we not receive uh, good from the Lord and evil also? But perhaps the worst of all of the thorns are the unbelievers in the visible church. That was the third one that Bernard was talking about. They're especially offended with us because we claim a righteousness in Christ, not in ourselves. It's quite offensive to them. It's the offense of the cross. It's the very offense that caused the people in Jesus' day to deliver him up to the cross. Because he said, you're not righteous His light shined into their sin. And they were trying to be righteous in themselves and by their own works. And see, religious people in the church who are not real believers, 
They hate the message of the cross, really. They might talk about the cross. They talk about it as an example, a moral example that stirs us and that we follow rather than as an atonement for sin. They don't want to acknowledge our need of a savior like that. And so they get mad and they turn against and they do things like delivering us up to be crucified. Jesus tells us, though, all these things, he says, be of good cheer. I've borne all these things. I, you're going to be, you're like me in the world. You can expect to be not treated better than your master, but as I was treated, so are you going to be treated. And then he said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's going to lead us out of this. He uses the thorns in our lives. He loves us and he will keep us by his gracious power among the thorns and we will grow. He's placed us here in this life to grow among the thorns. Yes, indeed. And this brings us to verse three. As his bride, we tell Jesus how satisfied he makes us. What a good husband he is to us. We tell him this as we experience his loving care as a husband. To him, we say, verse three, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved, so is my husband among the sons. See, I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Just as he told the bride that she was like a lily among thorns, so we tell him that he's like an apple tree among the trees of the woods. He stands out among the sons, as it says, as the beloved, as our beloved. No longer do we look to idols to satisfy us. All those trees, those common trees out there that don't have any fruit on them we look to him the apple tree in the midst of all of those with Ephraim we say what have I to do with idols anymore I've found my husband I have found the resting place I've found the the only one that can satisfy my soul we find him as our husband to be superior to them all our souls can find no rest apart from him until we come to him we're, we're churning. We're, we're, we're not satisfied. We're, we're always grasping and we're, we're unhappy. Rolling stones were right. I can't get no satisfaction. But just what do we find in Jesus, our husband? What is it about him? What do we as his bride tell him in this passage that we find in him? By the way, let me say something here. Um, you ought to tell him what you find in him. It's important to speak as the bride does here and to praise him. Like, don't just go to him and pray and say, Lord, will you do this? Will you do this? Will you do this? But go to him and say, Lord, you are the rose of Sharon. You are the lily of the valley. You are the delight of my eyes. You ought to tell him that as a bride. It honors him and it does you much good to actually speak to him. And, and wives likewise should respect their husbands and speak to them and, and honor them in their speech. So, so what, what do we say to him? Well, first in our text here, we tell him that we find great delight in his shade, in his protection, under his care. Think of the oppressive heat that's in the eastern countries where the scriptures were, uh, were brought to us. Shade trees were, were places. You see Abraham getting under a big oak tree and meeting with people there, having uh, a meal there in the middle of the day in the hot sun. Uh, he's out in the shade. Uh, some of you have, have found shade here from the sun. Shade trees are places of retreat. 
from the heat of the day. In the Bible, then, we see, uh, you remember Jonah with his gourd that grew up and gave him shade, and then it was gone, and he was all distressed about that. And here, we tell Christ that he is such a shade, such a protection for us under his branches. We have come under his shade. Another analogy used in scripture is that we've come under his wing. He shelters us from God's wrath and curse. That's the most marvelous. He has borne the wrath and curse. He's like a shield that takes all of the curse that we deserve. It all falls upon him, like the mother hen protecting her chicks. He shelters us from the thorns that we spoke of in the world, thorns of the world, thorns of the air, and thorns of unbelievers in the church. We are kept by his power, as we read in Peter, through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. And, and let me tell you, this keeping, you know, you, maybe you've been over to Point Pleasant Park, you know, and they have those, those uh, places where they go in for uh, safety and protection. Um, it's not a very pleasant place. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a stinky, smelly place, and you've got big walls around you. We're not talking about a bunker here. That's not the kind of protection that we're talking about. This place is described as delightful to be under his shade. It's like out in the open where you're in a field and the breeze is coming through the leaves and the sun is shielded from the, with, with the tree that's over your head. It's a delightful place. Let me tell you, the very way that he keeps us is by revealing his love and his beauty to us so that we cling to him instead of idols. You understand what, like, like, okay, here's Christ and here's the idol. And we're looking at him, we're saying, that idol looks pretty good. That idol actually looks better than Christ to me right now. And Christ reveals his glory to keep us more than we saw it before. So then his, we see more of his glory. In keeping us, he keeps revealing his glory to us so that we're no longer attracted to idols. What have I to do with idols now? I have seen the king. You see, there, I, my, I'm happy with my husband. This is more satisfying. This is more glorious. The more he keeps us, the more our delight in him increases. That's why the thorns in the world actually are helpful to us. The more happiness we experience in having him for our husband. It's a growing relationship. It's not a stagnant relationship. We're not down in a cave somewhere being protected. We're actually beholding his glory as it is revealed in the, in the scriptures to us and the spirit working in us. Second, what do we tell him? Second, we tell him that his fruit as our husband is sweet to our taste. He himself nourishes us and the food is sweet. He himself, as crucified, supplies us with mercy and grace by which we grow more and more like him. And more, the more we grow in our holiness, the sweeter we find him to be, to our taste. The more satisfying, the more beautiful. You don't grow in holiness without delighting in the beauty of Christ more. It's not just that I, I toughen up and I say, I'm not going to do that anymore. But I'm beholding the glory of Christ and I'm drawn to him and I want to be like him. I don't even want that anymore. That's how you know that you're really growing. There's a, there's a time, I mean, we have it with many things. There are things that we're drawn to that are not right and we're, we're drawn after them. And then as we grow, those things start to take a back place to him. That, that's how growth happens. So you see what, what I mean here is that even he reveals himself to us 
and we're transformed into his likeness, not in a forced way, not in a you have to do this way, but in a way of sweetness to his taste. Fills us with joy and gladness. I don't mean that our sanctification is painless or that there are no hard sacrifices required. There are. There are very hard sacrifices required. But what I mean is that whenever we bear the loss, whenever we make the sacrifice, we come away more satisfied with him and his love than we ever were before. And the loss is like nothing now compared to what we have found in him. His fruit is sweeter to our taste than it ever was before. We cherish him and we love him and we admire him more than ever before. What a difference it makes when you are satisfied with him. The angry, hostile spirit that erupts whenever you're clinging to idols is changed. It's tempered and it's replaced with joy, even in bearing hard things. When people aren't doing, when you're doing things that you get angry about, that offend you, that, that annoy you. Because you see, when we do, you find him to be so delightful and refreshing. You let go of that idol that says, I want things this way. They have to be this way or I'm, I'm, I'm angry about this. And you say, no, I belong to the Lord. I'm gentle. I want to be gentle like him. I want to, I'm, I'm going to trust him. He sent this hard thing into my life. No, no hostility, no bitterness, no anger. He's working in my life. I want to be more like him. You see his glory and excellence better than you saw it before. Or what about a different picture? The fearful, anxious spirit. What happens to that? It becomes all agitated and it becomes paralyzed and can't do things whenever you're clinging to idols. That happens when you cling to idols. That spirit is soothed and calmed. It's given peace in the Lord. Instead of trying to keep yourself calm, I'm not going to let this bother me, I'm not going to let this bother me, which is futile, you find solace trusting in his care and love. You say, my Lord is faithful to me. It doesn't matter if I die, if I lose my, all my wealth, if, if every, every doesn't matter. I have him and he's working in my life. That's right. Anxiety and fear always come from clinging to idols instead of Christ. You're not going to lose anything if you, if you trust him. And you know that if you trust him. What are you going to lose? What's going to happen to you? Nothing can happen to you. Nothing can harm you. When you let go of the idol that you're holding, I want control, I want control, I don't want this, then you're either angry or you're anxious. And what about the lusting, craving spirit in you? Okay, here's a whole other thing. See, there's all these different things that we have problems with. It, it tries to find satisfaction in things that we're not meant to find that kind of satisfaction in, in our wealth or preserving the wealth that we already have and getting more attention and more romance, and more recognition, and more sexual gratification than we have now, and more power. We want to have more power, more control. Whatever trees of the woods, those are the trees of the woods. They don't have any fruit for you. They're barren. And yet we, we, we always gravitate to those trees until we see the apple tree, until we see the Lord. When you let go of the idol and turn to him, you find rest in his shade and you find satisfaction in his shade. So all of a sudden, all those things that you're trying not to do because you're forbidden to do, they become less important. What happens when you come to Christ 
you sit in his shade with great delight, and his fruit is sweet to your taste. It's all about faith. Faith, trust in him instead of idols. There's a passage in Hosea that I referred to earlier when I mentioned Ephraim and how he said, what have I to do with idols anymore? You know the book of Hosea? It's the same picture that we have in the Song of Solomon of that God is our husband and we, in this case, and not in the, this isn't the case in the Song of Solomon, but in, um, in Hosea, Israel had become like a harlot. They were trusting in the Egyptians and the Assyrians and they were trusting in idols, Baal and all these different things. And God says, like, you know, you have forsaken your own husband and he rebukes them. And then when Ephraim repents, Ephraim says, what do I have to do with idols anymore? He's rejoicing in the Lord. This passage is remarkably similar to the text that we read in the Song of Solomon today. The book of Hosea is about this, you see, but it's about how God pursued Ephraim and how God restored Ephraim so that he returned to him and found satisfaction in him as his husband. Perhaps you need to return to the Lord yourself. Let me conclude then with the reading of Hosea 14. I'll make a couple of comments about it. The last chapter of Hosea. Listen to what it says. So similar to what we've looked at today. Hosea 14, beginning in verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your maker, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. Even though they had committed spiritual adultery and turning to idols and other gods. God's promise here is of mercy and forgiveness according to Christ. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. What is Jesus Christ called? The branch, the branch that spreads. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow, what we talked about here in uh, Song of Solomon, shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, here's the passage I quoted, what have I to do with any more with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit, the Lord says, is found in me. Fruit, sweet to our taste, fruit. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? This is the end of Hosea. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The Lord Jesus, as we saw in the Song of Solomon, is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. We find him to be the apple tree among the trees of the woods that have no fruit. We sit in his shade with great delight and his fruit is sweet to our taste. Question, 
Are you sitting in his shade and eating his fruit? Faith is not just knowing that here is a place of shade and here is a place where there is sweet fruit. Faith is sitting in the shade, sitting under his care and protection. Faith is feeding on the fruit that is sweet to our taste. It's actually partaking of the fruit that he gives to his people. You experience the delight of his protection only when you sit under the shade. You experience the sweet taste only when you eat. It begins with faith that turns from idols and looks to him for these things. And then we place ourselves in the shade and we feed upon him by his grace. And what is the result? True delight and satisfaction that the trees of the woods can't give, that only he can give, who is also the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Please, let's stand up and let's give thanks. Oh, Lord God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your holy word. We are so thankful that you have given us this this helpful revelation about our Lord Jesus Christ, that throughout the scripture, he's called things like the good shepherd and the light of the world and the resurrection of the life and the true vine and so many wonderful things. And here in the Song of Solomon, he says, I am the rose of Sharon and I am the lily of the valleys. What a wonderful thing this is, Lord, for us to have one who is so lovely that stands above all the rest, the one who is the apple tree among the trees of the forest that are have no fruit at all. We thank you that we find great delight under his shadow and that we eat the fruit that is sweet to our taste. Father, we pray that, that you would cause us to feast on our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we look for food that can never satisfy us? Why do we turn to such empty things when we have a Savior who is able to, to satisfy our souls so that we're no longer angry, hostile people, so that we're no longer anxious, fearful people, so that we are no longer covetous, greedy, grasping people who are always trying to find satisfaction. Oh Lord, our rest is in you. You are our resting place. Here we love to dwell. Father, please, may we grow in this. For Lord, we would confess openly to you that there is still a lot of idolatry in us. There's still a lot of anxiety. There's still a lot of anger and bitterness. There's still a lot of covetousness and and lust after things that are idols that are not good. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Look upon us and visit us. And Lord, we have a particular way that we learned today in our text that, that we want you to visit us. We want you to show us your beauty. Lord, we want to see your glory and to be changed then into your likeness as we behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, please reveal Christ to us. Help us, Lord, to to be lost in him so that we don't go on in our, our stupid, idolatrous ways, our idiotic ways. Father, we're such a mess. We're so, we're so defiled and so ruined. Father, we, we, see, we see those who, who completely turn away from you and they, they look at the other trees and they go after them and it's so empty, it's so futile. Truly, 
Solomon, who wrote the Song of Solomon, also wrote Ecclesiastes. He was so right. The book that just goes before the Song of Solomon, when he, he laid out vanity of vanity, all is vanity under the sun, that if we don't look up to heaven and we don't see the one who came from heaven to redeem us, it's just all striving after the wind. It's never going to get anywhere. It's never going to go any. Oh, Lord, deliver us from our folly and our foolishness that we may find delight in you and that we may with Ephraim say, what have I to do anymore with idols? Thank you, O Lord, for your glorious revelation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated and let's feast upon him. Let's come to the Lord's table. What a, what a passage this is to prepare us for the Lord's table. I regret that uh, those who are on live stream cannot join us in this way, but I encourage you to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us. Peter said, To whom shall we go? You, to Jesus Christ, you have the words of eternal life. The Apostle Peter spoke those words when Jesus had just told them that they must, in so many words, sit under his shade and taste of the sweetness of his fruit. He said that I'm the bread of life and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part with me. And the multitude that had come to follow him that wanted their idols, they wanted him to do what they wanted him to do instead of what he had come to do, they rejected him and they walked no more with him. They said, we don't like what you're doing, Lord, we're out of here. And they left. They didn't call him Lord anymore. Interesting thing about Peter here. Peter has faith, but he doesn't yet have delight in the Lord. He's at that place where he sees that this is the apple tree, but he hasn't yet tasted much of of the, the sweet fruit. He's not yet felt the protection of the, the, the shade of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he says is rather negative. We don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> I realize this is the only place, but... I guess we got to settle for this because there's not really anything. And we see that Peter's like that. I mean, he struggles with the cross. He struggles with, he denies Christ. Later on, he had faith. He knew to turn to Christ and that saving faith. He knew that the blessing was not to be found in idols, but it was yet some time before he came to do what he says in his first epistle, to love Christ fervently and to rejoice in him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I say this to you to say this is something that we grow into. You know, uh, we, we come to maturity in these things. And Peter was transformed because he had faith. And Jesus does that work of revealing his glory to him and transforming him. Before Jesus went to the cross, we see Peter trusting Christ, but also trying to control Christ. Lord, God forbid that you should go to the cross. This is the wrong move. You shouldn't be doing this. He gets frustrated. Why are you doing this? Why aren't we fighting against these enemies? Jesus told him to put his sword away. I was ready to fight. Peter says, this was my agenda. I told you I was ready to die for you. I was ready to fight. What are you doing? Like, not going to fight. I'm ready to stand up against all of these guys. And you tell me, put my sword away. Over time, Peter learned to sit under his shade, and to actually taste his fruit. 
like I said in the sermon, you must actually sit and you must actually taste. Not just know that he is shade, know that he has sweet fruit. Over time, Peter came to do this. He sat and he ate and how delightful it was. My brothers and sisters, let us do this today at the Lord's table. Here we have presented to us at the Lord's table. Oh, it's on this side now. We, we have presented to us at the Lord's table the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. Here by, this, by, these, uh, by the, the bread and the wine, he proclaims his delight in us when we come to the table as the lilies that he loves. Lilies among thorns. And here at this table, he welcomes us to do what? Sit down in his shade, looking to his protection and to eat the sweet fruit that he gives to us. He offers to us communion with him in his body and blood, in him as the one who is sacrificed for us, that we might be saved and that we might be restored to fellowship with him and his father forever. We come here because we're needy and we realize here is the resting place. Here is the tree of life. At this table, he shows us that he has ongoing communion with us, that we might grow in our relationship with him and with his father. He reveals his glory to us at this table. Here we see the cross that that he was given for us. These are symbols of his body and his blood shed on the cross for the remission of our sins. It points us to the cross where, where his justice is seen more than anywhere else, where his wisdom is seen more than anywhere else, where his love is seen more than anything anywhere else. His grace, his mercy, all is seen at the cross. He reveals it to us that we might delight in him, that we might love him, and delight in him as our faithful husband who loved us and gave himself for us. He wants us to take refuge in him. He wants us to feed upon him. Hear his words then of institution from Mark's gospel. Mark 14, 22 through 25. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant. You see what he's setting before us? This is the way of reconciliation to God, that Jesus died on the cross. That's what's represented here. This is the blood of the new covenant, which was shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. If you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, if like Peter, you know that he has the words of eternal life and that there is nowhere else to go, then you're welcome to come to this table as long as you've been baptized and are one who has professed your faith in a faithful church, in good standing of a faithful church. But be sure that you come rightly, looking to him with thanksgiving, resting in him for forgiveness of your sin, and seeking his grace that you might grow to be more and more like him. Don't come to this table if you're not seeking to grow. Ask him to help you to take refuge in his shade, not in the shade of idols, and ask him to feed you and help you to taste of the sweetness of his fruits instead of the fruits of the world that make us sick. Let's pray and ask him to bless us.
Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you send into the world to redeem us. How we thank you that by his stripes we are healed, that now he is a shade of protection for us. He has provided atonement to cover our sins, even before your wrath. He also preserves us and keeps us from the world. We thank you for the way that he does that, not by taking away the thorns, but by causing us to delight in him among, when we're among the thorns, so that all the trees of the wood are still there, that are idols and things all around us, beckoning to us or pushing us and persecuting us. But all the while, we behold him and we see more and more his glory. And truly, O oh Lord, we are transformed. We ask you then, Lord, as we come to this table, we want to feed on Christ. And here, Lord, you give us the, the tokens of his, him as crucified for us, him coming in the flesh, the bread, and him suffering, shedding his blood for us for atonement. And Father, we pray that as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, that we would look to our Savior, that we would look to him to nourish us, to comfort us, to change us, and that we would look to him as the beautiful one that is represented here, as the rose of Sharon and as the lily of the valley. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not just come to this table and, and put bread in our mouth and drink a cup of, of wine, but we pray that we would rather come to this table and actually spiritually feed upon Christ. Lord, that we would, we would actually, by your Spirit, be strengthened and changed, that our faith would be stronger, that our comfort would be richer in our Lord Jesus, that we would actually taste and see that he is good and that we would go away from here refreshed to serve him and to encourage others in their service to him. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved and forgiven. Thank you, O Lord, that not only do you nourish us now that we have been forgiven, but that you also continue to forgive us for the sins that we continue to commit. O Father, deliver us from those sins. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your glory down and visit us now, Lord, as we partake of the bread and wine in Jesus' name. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. According to the holy institution, command, and example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I take this bread and having blessed it, break it and give it to you. Now receive the blessing of the Lord. Please stand to receive the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.